everyone and welcome back to another episode of Topical Reflections on Music. Aujourd'hui, euh, j'aurai le plaisir d'accueillir la docteure Claudine Jacques, docteur en musicologie, une vieille amie, une de mes premières amies canadiennes. This will be a bilingual exchange. Uh, thank you very much, uh, dear Claudine, for agreeing to join uh, me today. Well, thank you for having me, Alexandra. It's nice to reconnect. Uh, I mean, we uh, life kind of drew us apart for a few years, but you know, sometimes we. Uh, it's nice. It's always nice to 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 meet old friends and reconnect. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to chatting about music, about life after uh, a PhD, I guess. Yes, right indeed. and uh what the, uh the the multiple possibilities because doing a phd uh yes it's a it's a very niched uh esoteric maybe degree but uh there's a there's a lot of things that that you can do with it so i'm looking forward to uh to having this conversation uh, with you uh, claudine uh fait un doctorat en musicologie mais présentement elle travaille comme directrice de communication à l'Opéra de Québec. So this is a very esoteric and unknown discipline, uh, the musicology among the wider public. Your training is all the more interesting because you currently work as communications director at the Quebec Opera. So in the context of the wider discussion about adaptability of academic credentials, in a business context, how, if at all, did your musicological training prepare you for your current role? Yes, I mean, my, my training, uh, my career path in a way is rather interesting. And actually it's been 10 years, uh, almost to this day, since I uh, defended my doctoral dissertation at, uh, at McGill. And uh, so it's, uh, it's kind of mind boggling to, to reflect on the past 10 years and all the things that, uh, that I've done and since, since then. So, but I also think that my career path is a testimony of you know, how a PhD may prepare you to, to assume a wide array of roles in the arts, uh, it allowed me, uh, for starter, to meet a lot of different and interesting people, uh, but also to grow uh, as a person. Now, in your question, you mentioned adaptability, and I think you know that adaptability is key in today's job market. Whatever role you end up assuming, whatever your field, uh, the world today is very fast-paced. You have to think outside the box, find novel solutions. And I think a PhD, in a way, uh, well prepares you for that because it's always intellectually stimulating, always thinking outside the box, as I said, finding new solutions. And uh, during the, the past 10 years, I've done a, a wide variety of jobs, mostly in the arts administration. Uh, so it has enabled me to gain a very comprehensive view of the arts sector uh, in Quebec in Canada, but also uh, the, the arts sector more, more globally in, in the US and Europe. And, and very, very early on, actually, uh, in my first year at university, I realized that I wanted to do uh, a PhD. So for me, it was first and foremost an intellectual challenge, pursuing a passion and also a way of learning more about the field that I was passionate about, which is musicology, which is 
music history and everything that has to do with uh, classical uh, music. But, you know, now let's face it, uh, actually very few uh, PhD graduates go on to have academic, academic careers, being professor at university, teaching, researching, writing, and publishing papers. Uh, most of graduates go on and, and having so-called uh, real world jobs. And, uh, and that's, totally okay in my opinion. I mean, it's uh, can lead to fulfilling careers. And I think that in general, we hugely underestimate the value of higher education in preparing graduates for the real world outside academia. And also the importance of many of the so-called soft skills that one can gain while being in grad school. So writing skills, researching skills, synthesizing skills, you know, we have a lot of information, but you have limited space to, to convey that information. We'll come back to that later. Also pedagogical skills, such, such as teaching and explaining concept to others. Uh, uh, doing a, a PhD, and you know that Alexandra, because you've done the same, you know, you taught seminars, classes, and uh, my job as a communication director is also to, to teach in a way, to teach about classical music, to get people interested in, in classical music and opera in the, in the art form. And so my, my training as a, uh, uh, as a musicologist, I think uh, very well prepare me for that. And uh, so, you know, if you have those skills, it's already a very strong basis on which to progress and to advance. And then you can always learn the specific of each job later on. Like if you have a sound uh, training, university training with rigorous training and that you, you know, you've done, uh, everything that you, you need to do and that you want to strive to, to learn more, grow more as a person, then uh, you can always learn to the, the, gain the uh, uh, professional experience later on. That's, that's always possible. And um, so- uh, if, if I may interject here. Yes. Now, of course, you know this, I know this, and everyone who has done higher degrees does know what you're saying, but did you have any problem convincing potential employers to hire you? Well, definitely it had, yes, but it was a, it was not necessarily a bad thing in the sense that yes, the first, the first CV that I sent out and the first interviews that I, um, th that I had, people were kind of puzzled to see me arrive with this PhD and they didn't they didn't know where to kind of fit me in their little boxes you know but um then it led me to to reflect and say okay well what can I bring to the job market and actually the more I, I kept thinking about that the more I realized that actually there's a lot that I can bring to the the, the job market there's a lot of things that I can do and then also you discover what you're really good at, what you really want to do in life. Like I, I experimented fundraising, communication, administration, uh, ticket office uh, manager, you know, and then I realized that what I wanted to do is more communication, more marketing communication side of things. So I went more down that path and gained more of that experience. But um, yes, definitely, uh, it, it was a bit of a challenge, an interesting challenge at the, at the beginning. Now, this all leads into my, my next question that a lot of organizational fundraising is based on grant writing. 
just like a lot of academic project work. Uh, to what extent did your experience in academia help you find your footing in the business aspect of things? Yes, well, uh, it's true that academic studies often involve writing grants, but just like uh, many aspects of working in arts administration too. So the process of both type of grant writing is actually uh, rather similar, I think. And uh, that's one of the very concrete way in which an academic training uh, can be useful in the so-called real job uh, mm. market uh, because but first it always comes with a project you need to develop a strong compelling project this is the key element it's kind of the basic why are you doing this project what is the value of this project and what will it bring to you to society to to, to your field what will you or your field learn from from this project and then you and that that is valid both for uh, arts administration and for more niched uh, academic uh, academic work. You know, it starts with a project. And then also in grant writing, you often have a limited number of words of, or characters available. Now, Alexandra, as a composer, I know that you write a lot of grants, you know this, you know, it's you can't go one word beyond what they're asking you. So uh, you really have to be yeah, you really have to be concise in what you're saying. And I think doing a PhD, uh, I mean, you know, when you're writing a dissertation, after four or five years of researching, when you finally get to the writing stage, you've accumulated so much knowledge, so much primary sources sometimes, uh, you've read so much. Now you have to kind of weed out what is not so important, what is interesting but not so important and make a difference between what might be important for uh, the people reviewing the grants or, or the project or involved in, in, in giving you money so that the project can actually uh, happen. And you know the, the French writer, uh, 17th century French writer Boileau said, ce qui se conçoit bien s'énonce clairement et les mots pour le dire viennent aisément. So, and I think that is exactly what an academic, academic, sorry, career uh, prepares you for to, to summarize, synthesize, get to the point, you know, people reviewing projects don't have a lot of time on their hands often. So, um, and then, um, so also, well, my PhD allowed me to develop a lot of writing skills, not only critical thinking and summarize and everything, but in, in terms of writing, using the right word, every word can be uh, important. That, that's true when you're writing a, a dissertation, but it's also true when you're uh, uh, writing a project for, for a grant or for a funding, for a funding body. So uh, I think that's really where I, that, that th these are major skills I would say that I could put to use for grant writing, but in, in, in general, in my career, uh, in my career today. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I guess, yeah, that's- Now you did say the big word money. I'm very yes. happy that I think you were the first one to say the word money, and I'm very happy to hear that. In uh, in our business, in, in our life uh, as artists, uh, money is sometimes a taboo subject because of artificially created constraints um, <clears throat> make us embarrassed to work for money. Uh, now you, uh, as an editor, do you find that public and private funding agencies seek 
similarly presented and worded projects to sponsor? And have you found yourself uh, adjusting the viewpoint of a project to better interest different agencies? Uh, yes, well, my duties now at the Opera Quebec, I'm not involved so much in public funding agencies, but uh, my duties kind of encompass managing private funding and donations. Mm -hmm. But however, I was involved in the past with uh, uh, public funding, uh, so I can, I can speak from that perspective. Uh, now, first of all, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, I'd like to remind that there are three main types of, of funding that is accessible to arts sector organizations. First of all, there's the public funding, like the, the CAL, so the Conseil des Arts de Québec, there's a Canada Council for the Arts, Conseil des Arts de Montréal, and mm -hmm. others. So that's the public funding. Then there are some donations, either from individual or corporation, for instance, you know, there's a, the, the general appeal at the end of the year that you send out to people. And then if they like your, your organization, you know, they will they will give some money to support you or maybe you, you're asking for donation for a specific uh, project that, that you have going on. And then there's a, there's sponsorship. So sponsorship is a different kind of kind of animal, but each has its specificities. Each has to be approached in its own unique way. So absolutely a, a project has to be adjusted accordingly. You know, the, 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 the era of you craft a project, you print it out 10 times and send it to like a hundred uh, companies uh, and, and hope that the, the, these companies will be uh, interested. That is, that is over. Um, so every agency, whether private or public, is different. So you have to look carefully also at the, at the criteria and uh, what they're looking for, uh, what they will fund, and what their expectations are, what their objectives are, because otherwise you, you risk your great project not to be funded just because it's not the right organization to, to fund it. Can, uh, sorry to interrupt. Can you explain the difference between donation and sponsorship? Okay, well, donations is, uh, you know, it's, for example, an individual that, uh, that will give money to, to, to support the organization or, or the cause. The sponsorship is someone or usually a company that will give you money, but in exchange, they're expecting some visibility. Uh, so usually the, the funds come from uh, the marketing department from, uh, for companies. For example, um, you know, uh, Banque Nationale might decide to, to fund, uh, or Desjardins might decide to fund uh, an orchestra or uh, an opera season or, or production. And in exchange, they'll have their logo, maybe they'll have a, a private uh, lounge during intermission so that their the, 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 so that they have some visibility there, uh, so that VIPs can, can have a drink at uh, intermission in that uh, specific space, get some banners. So this is really sponsorship actually is a, is a donation, but there's, there's something in return, I would say. There's some visibility in return. Well, this is very interesting for those of us who are not really as deep into this as you are. I do remember when... Uh, uh, surely gave a big donation to the School of Music, but in exchange, yeah. the school was renamed after him. So would you say, would you say that this is sponsorship rather than a donation? 
I would say that is, well, it's a donation, uh, but definitely it's, if it were a company, okay. it would be part of a uh, sponsorship. And the reason why it's not called sponsorship is because McGill University is not a company or because surely he's not a surely. company? Actually, this is a, it's an interesting question. I would say it's, it's definitely not a sponsorship, but there are uh, elements of similarity between that for sure. Okay, it's not a sponsorship because he is not saying this is what you should be teaching in your school? No, because I don't think companies giving money to, uh, to arts organization in exchange for visibility. They're also, not, uh, they're also not telling arts organization what, you know, what they should do or yeah, what okay. production they, 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 they should present. I think it's important to retain that, um, uh, that autonomy in terms of your programming, right? Uh, it's not just because a company gives you money that you need to change your, your programming uh, or definitely it's, uh, yeah. So. But is this a legit request? I mean, can someone make a big donation saying, I'll give you a lot of money, but please put on Rigoletto? Well, you have to weigh the pros and cons of doing that. Okay. It certainly is a legitimate request. Sure. Okay. Okay. I mean, uh, sure, sure. I mean, if you know, if someone gives you money and say, okay, can be a sponsorship or can could be a donor, you know, so someone who says, oh, okay, I'm giving you that amount of money, but in exchange, you know, I want this opera or this work of music to 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 be put on, and then I guess it's for the arts organization. Uh, given the, the the situation, what they what they want, what their objectives are, to see if they will accept that or not. Uh, it's it's very case by case basis. But okay. usually, uh, usually companies with sponsorship they they do not make these kind of okay. uh, decisions. Artistic when it's purely artistic decisions, they tend to to leave artistic companies their their freedom. I guess I'm a bit confused because I have seen donor lists in concert programs. Yes. And sometimes they're called donors, sometimes they're called sponsors. So I guess sometimes I'm not clear as, as to the difference. Only donors do get a tax receipt. Is this correct? Well, it depends what advantages you've gotten in return. Okay. I mean, for in, in, the, in terms of a sponsorship, if, if you've gotten visibility, Okay. And that's that's something that you've received. Or for example, when you attend a, a gala and uh, you get uh, a, uh, um, a, a dinner, maybe a, a small gift at the end of the gala, then your tax receipt will be adjusted accordingly. Okay. So like uh, you, may, you might pay $400 for, for your, uh, your gala dinner. Okay. You know, one day these will happen again, uh, these gala dinners. Yeah, uh, one day. It won't be COVID times forever, but um, yeah, no. So, um, uh, but you know, you might only get a $300 tax receipt because, yeah. you know, yeah. you had a gift uh, at the end, it was a dinner, wine yeah. and so on. Uh, so you, you have to be careful because the, the Canadian Revenue Agency uh, is very strict. Uh, they have some specific guidelines because, of course, it involves public money with tax receipt. It's, you know, yeah. people who can deduct that from their taxes. So the government wants to make sure that uh, it's done accordingly. Uh, accordingly. 
On va parler un peu en français pour nos auditeurs de Québec. D'accord. Une minorité de, des écouteurs de ce balado. Euh, la majorité provient des pays hors du Canada, en fait. OK. Très intéressant. Ce n'était pas, pas dans mes plans au début, mais on ne sait jamais comment le tout va virer. C'est la joie euh, d'Internet. Oui, c'est ça. C'est la magie de l'Internet. Euh, alors, en parlant spécifiquement au sujet de l'opéra, quels sont les mots-clés euh, qui doivent être présents aujourd'hui dans une candidature écrite afin d'intéresser les philanthropes? Oh là là, c'est euh, vraiment une question qui est un peu difficile à répondre parce que… Euh... Oh, merci! <rire> Quand vous êtes des questions trop faciles, je veux Non, non, c'est ça, il faut, faut que ce soit intéressant des fois. <rire> Mais euh, pas que les questions n'étaient pas intéressantes, au contraire, c'est vraiment des très bonnes questions euh, intéressantes que tu poses. Mais, mais au-delà des mots-clés, en fait, euh, je te dirais que le lien avec les philanthropes, les donateurs de… de, de notre organisation, est vraiment important. Il faut les impliquer, leur mmh. faire sentir qu'ils font partie d'une communauté, qu'ils font partie de la famille. Donc, mmh. euh, et sinon, ça dépend aussi beaucoup euh, à qui tu t'adresses. Euh, parce que les, les donateurs ont tous des, des intérêts différents aussi, euh, que ce soit des compagnies, des, des donateurs privés ou, ou, ou peu importe, ou des fondations... Euh, tous ces gens-là ont, ont leurs propres euh, leur propre agendas, leurs propres sphères d'intérêt. Donc, mais je te dirais que, bon, des mots-clés qui, pour, pour le moment, aujourd'hui, puis encore là, ça change. Une des raisons pourquoi c'est difficile à répondre, c'est que ces mots-clés-là euh, peuvent changer rapidement aussi. OK. Peut-être pas nécessairement, euh, si on se reparlait dans, dans cinq ans, dans dix ans, ce serait peut-être pas nécessairement les mêmes. Mais je te dirais que, euh, bon, l'innovation, c'est important. Euh, si on répète toujours la même chose, la même façon, euh, bon, il faut, faut se renouveler. Euh, on, se, on se les fait dire beaucoup en temps de COVID, les organismes artistiques. Donc, euh, innovation, renouvellement, euh, renouvellement de public, de la programmation aussi, l'excellence. Euh, les, les donateurs, souvent, veulent sentir que... Euh, on, on tend vers l'excellence, qu'on est excellent dans notre, dans notre domaine, dans notre sphère d'action. Euh, ensuite, euh, la communauté, un sens de, de communauté. Souvent, les donateurs aiment bien sentir qu'on a été capable de rallier une communauté à notre cause, autour de notre projet, de notre organisation, euh, de l'engagement. Encore là, ça revient un peu à la communauté, avoir un, un public qui est engagé. Euh, accessibilité aussi, euh, depuis quelques années, c'est très important. Rendre l'opéra accessible au plus grand nombre, que ce soit euh, aux personnes euh, à, à faible revenu, euh, aux, aux, aux immigrants peut-être. Comment, comment est-ce qu'on va vers ces personnes-là? Comment est-ce qu'on rend l'opéra accessible aux personnes avec des handicaps aussi? Euh, bon, est-ce que, est que nos salles sont accessibles pour, disons, euh, des personnes qui ont, qui ont des fauteuils roulants, des personnes qui ont des handicaps visuels? Est que, comment, comment est-ce qu'on est qu s'assure que, que personne n'est laissé de côté dans, dans ce qu'on fait? Mm -hmm. Et ça rejoint aussi euh, la diversité et l'inclusion euh, qui est un peu euh, en lien avec l'accessibilité, en fait. Euh, et, euh, parce que, bon, les donateurs, ils veulent s'assurer que les, les projets financés euh, vont pouvoir rejoindre tout le monde, hein, qu'on qu ne parlera pas juste à un, un petit groupe fermé. Donc, euh, donc voilà. Et euh, je dirais qu'aussi, au-delà des mots-clés et tout, ce qui est très, très important, c'est de montrer aux philanthropes comment on se démarque euh, en tant qu'artiste ou institution culturelle. Il faut trouver des, des mots-clés spécifiques à qui on est comme artiste ou comme institution. Mm -hmm. 
qui colle à notre projet. Et ça, euh, ben, ça dépend de, de, de chaque institution aussi. Euh, je veux dire, les mots-clés euh, à l'Opéra de Québec, ce n'est peut-être pas la même chose que les mots-clés qu'utiliserait, disons, l'Opéra de Montréal, euh, le Metropolitan Opera New York, ou les, la Canadian Opera Company, ou même euh, les, les, les orchestres comme l'OSM. Euh, tout, de, tout dépend de ça, comment on se démarque, notre positionnement, euh, euh, notre image de marque. Alors, euh, c'est pour ça que ça, c'est une question euh, à la fois très large, mais aussi très spécifique à la situation. Mais j'aimerais euh, alors continuer un peu euh, avec le même sujet. Euh, vous avez servi comme coordinatrice du financement public et privé de l'École nationale du théâtre du Canada. Entre autres, vous avez géré les budgets pour les efforts philanthropiques, le sociofinancement et les rapports pour les subventionnaires publics. Alors ici, en parlant de, de très large et, euh, et très spécifique, les tactiques d'assurer la réussite sont-elles trop différentes entre l'opéra et le théâtre? Jusqu'à jusqu maintenant, on a juste parlé de l'opéra. En quoi les tactiques sont-elles similaires et en quoi sont-elles différentes? Ben, en fait, l'opéra, tu sais, comporte une grande part de théâtre aussi. Donc, oui. l'opéra étant l'art total, il y a du maquillage, costume, décor, mise en scène, un peu de jeu d'acteur aussi dans, dans, dans l'opéra. Et euh, donc, je te dirais qu'en matière de stratégie philanthropique, il y a beaucoup de similarités entre l'opéra et le théâtre et même l'éducation. Parce que moi, j'étais, bon, à l'École nationale de théâtre, c'est quand même, oui, c'est le théâtre, mais c'est avant tout, c'est une école. Donc, mm -hmm. euh, il y a un projet pédagogique, on forme les, les acteurs euh, de demain. Donc, euh, à, à chaque fois, euh, il s'agit d'une relation, euh, d'une communication, d'une conversation avec les donateurs afin de mobiliser une communauté autour de, de, de notre organisation, de, de notre projet. Et euh, donc, euh, au-delà au de simplement euh, demander euh, des, des, bon, euh, des sous du financement, c'est important, je crois, de raconter une histoire Mm -hmm. de raconter qui on est, d'où on vient, où on s'en va, qui on est comme institution culturelle. Et, donc, et ça, c'est très similaire dans, dans tous les, les, les secteurs des arts, que ce soit pour, pour la danse, pour le, le théâtre, pour l'opéra, pour la musique classique, pour le, pour le cirque. Donc, il y, a, il y a des stratégies qui sont extrêmement, extrêmement similaires. Et même, bon, dans le cas du financement public, les programmes sont souvent très normés. Donc, euh, si on prend, par exemple, comme le, le Conseil des arts et des lettres du Québec, le, le Conseil des arts du Canada, bon, il y, a des, il y a des formulaires, il y a des lignes directrices, évidemment, pour s'assurer que, euh, par souci d'équité, et ça, ça peut se ressembler beaucoup, que ce soit pour la musique, le théâtre, la danse. Bien sûr, il y a des spécificités propres à chaque, euh, à chaque discipline artistique, bien sûr, c'est évident. Mais, euh, mais au final, là, ça se, ça se ressemble beaucoup. Euh, et puis, dans, dans chaque cas, en fait, euh, il, il faut savoir que ce soit public ou privé, euh, il faut savoir qui sont nos donateurs aussi, apprendre à les connaître de manière euh, euh, approfondie, connaître notre communauté, qui sont nos spectateurs, qui, euh, qui vient voir nos spectacles, qui est dans nos salles, euh, qui nous donne des sous, qui est intéressé à, à, ce qu à ce que notre mission poursuive puis nous aider à aller encore plus loin que ce qu'on fait, qu qu fait maintenant? Comment rejoindre les personnes qui sont susceptibles de faire un don, mais qui ne mais qui sont pas encore donateurs ou donatrices, mais qui pourraient l'être? 
Euh, donc, euh, je, bon, les, les, les stratégies mises en place pour rejoindre tout, euh, tout ce beau monde-là sont, comme j'ai dit, là, sont, 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 euh, sont, très, euh, sont très similaires. Mm-hmm. Il y a plusieurs euh, stratégies possibles. Là, euh, et aussi, euh, je dirais que les stratégies dépendent beaucoup de... Euh, on va solliciter une personne pour quel type de don. Évidemment, euh, on ne sollicite pas une personne de la même façon pour, disons, un don majeur ou un don testamentaire que pour euh, la campagne annuelle qui est plus générale et qui a une portée un petit peu plus large. Souvent, des, des dons majeurs, euh, bon, c'est, c'est, une, c'est un petit peu plus du, du one-on-one, là, en, mm-hmm. en bon français, c'est, 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 plus, euh, c'est beaucoup plus euh, personnalisé. Alors, je dirais que les différences importantes sont beaucoup plus là, en fait, euh, au niveau des différents types de dons, les différents niveaux de dons. C'est là que les différences sont plus plutôt qu'au niveau de, de, entre euh, organisations euh, artistiques, là, parce que sinon, les stratégies se ressemblent beaucoup à travers différents organismes artistiques, mais les stratégies vont varier selon les paliers de dons, selon les... Non, ben, si, ça, si je m'explique correctement. Oh, oh c'est, 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 c'est une magnifique explication. Euh, tu as ah, fait ah. un doctorat, je pense. Hein? <rire> uh, well, I, I would like to exit uh, Québec a little bit, <coughs> Canada. Uh, and uh, talk about uh, similar issues uh, in Europe. Now, you know very well the European cultural scene. You hold an international baccalaureate from the Frankfurt uh, International School. For our listeners who are unaware, could you please explain how do the European and the North American funding models differ, especially for opera houses? Yes, and actually, you'll see that I'll add a third model to your mix. I'll explain why. Good. But uh, first of all, yes, I, I uh, had the privilege uh, of being able to live in Europe for two years uh, during my late teen years. So just before going to, to, to university, and that taught me a lot in different ways. And so uh, I was able to gain some experience how, you know, the arts was funded, how the, the artistic the art milieu was, was working over there. And uh, so as you pointed out, there are some huge differences between the way uh, North American and European opera houses seek funding. There are often historical reasons for this uh, that go back centuries. So in Europe during the 17, 18, and a little bit during the 19th century, for instance, princes and the nobility funded opera and other art forms as a sometimes in a way of showing off, right? Oh, look, here, there's the, the best music. I have that, that many musicians and I'm going to, to uh, perform this new work by this up and coming uh, composer. And so, uh, but as the nobility gradually disappeared during the 19th century, uh, governments took on, took on this funding role. Uh, and there's, there's no such history here in North America of, I mean, of nobility. Uh, And this has shaped the funding model uh, as well. North American opera houses, and especially in the US, they rely a lot more on uh, on their top donors. Uh, But also philanthropy and the culture of giving in general is uh, more developed in North America, uh, particularly in the US than than in, in, uh, in, in Europe. Uh, in Europe, and I've done a little bit of research uh, for this question, uh, the government tends to fund opera houses more, sometimes up to 50-60% of their total budget, sometimes even 70% uh, in Germany, for instance, uh, will come from government. Um, and also, uh, so, uh, 
the, the, the government may also play a greater role in opera houses management. So in, in some cases, the government will be involved in uh, nominating uh, the general manager of, of uh, cultural uh, institutions. Uh, so European society believe that uh, believe in a heavy government investment in the arts and in matter, many other aspects of, of, of society as well, not just the arts in general and in Europe. Uh, the government are somewhat more involved. You look at the healthcare system, the, the education, which is often free in Europe. Uh, it's a it's just a different mindset. I'm not saying it's better or, or, or bad. There are pros and cons definitely for each of these systems, but this is just the way, you know, and this is, again, this is not a, a, a judgment on uh, the way uh, Europe and North America do things, but it's just a, so uh, philanthropy has been slower to develop up in, in Europe, perhaps for, for, for that reason, although this is also changing. But in contrast, North America, and particularly in the US, it's the exact opposite. The government doesn't fund the arts as much. And in the US, sometimes it's only five or 10% of the overall budget that comes from, from government. Uh, and and uh, in the US, people tend to be wary in general, a bit more of government intervention in their everyday life. Um, so, uh, but there's also a lot of, a lot more fiscal incentive for philanthropists and donors to, to give to opera houses. So there's, and this, this idea that, okay, well, if you've been successful in life, if you've set up a company, let's say, and you've made a lot of money, then it's your duty to give back to your community. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, there's a, a lot of energy that's being done to finding these people, to rallying them around your project, your institution, and to, to solicit uh, big gifts from, from people. Um, but uh, so it's not only two different funding models, but it's also two different, two different conceptions of philanthropy and the extent to which the government should be involved in the arts and in society more general, as I said. But actually, uh, I would add to the mix a third model, which is the Quebec-Canada model. We, we have a hybrid of these so-called opposite world, world views. Uh, so here in Quebec and, and Canada, we're fortunate because the government does fund the arts to a, a considerable uh, extent. I mean, we're quite fortunate in that way. If we've seen, uh, you know, the government uh, funding during COVID for arts uh, institution, there, there's, you know, there's been real effort that have been uh, made to ensure the, the survival of institutions that uh, institutions could put on shows even digitally even online and um, and uh, uh, but so so yes so there's there's this more uh, uh, involvement of the of government in in funding arts institutions while at the same time arts institutions are encouraged to put forward philanthropic initiatives, uh, especially during the past 10, 15 uh, years uh, to connect with donors, connect with audiences, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to uh, solicit bigger gifts from, uh, from donors. And we see more uh, um, the, the, the don't testamentaire, I forget, mm -hmm. 
uh, how I forget the English name, I'm sorry, but uh, um, people who give money in their will. This mm -hmm. is something that you wouldn't see necessarily 10, 15 years ago, but it's definitely something that institutions are paying attention to, uh, to, to, to make sure that uh, we connect in that way with, with donors and that they can. Now you, you mentioned people who are successful, who give back to society and people who leave uh, a large uh, um, donation in their will. Now they tend generally to be older. Uh, very few 25 year olds will think of uh, writing anything in their will of this magnitude. And uh, as a society, we are constantly told uh, that the age of regular opera patrons continues to advance. And I wonder if in your experience, this is true. And if so, how do you frame this to the advantage of the Opera House's organizer of the annual fundraising efforts? What efforts do you and your colleagues employ to rejuvenate the age of opera? <laughs> well, this is a two-part question. So first of all is, okay, yes, our audience is aging. How can we use that to our benefit? Uh, and the other, the other question is, how can we rejuvenate the, uh, the, the, the age of opera lovers? That so, yes, <laughs> so I'll address both points. Uh, so aging audiences have become sort of the elephant in, in the room. Of course, people are always lamenting that, oh, classical music, it's only gray heads, uh, uh, especially opera, there's no young people. Uh, I would say that this is not quite so true anymore okay. in some cases. I mean, you see that the, the institutions who have made real effort in connecting to a younger audience see the benefits. I'll, I'll get more into that later. But so for your first question, yes, the, 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 the audience is, uh, is aging. So, um, so we definitely want to connect with this older audience for fundraising. So this is the core audience in a way. It's the people who have been with us for a long time. I mean, maybe they started uh, going to the opera when they were in their 40s or early 50s. You know, now they're getting to a point where it's more difficult for them to, to go out and attend shows. They see that, oh, well, they have to think about their succession. Um, so, uh, so, you know, and, and they themselves want to leave their mark on, on society. Uh, they, they, they want to give back. Uh, they want to make sure that the institutions that they loved continue to thrive for the, the coming generations. So uh, this is the audience also that know us well. They love the art form. They have the ability and desire to give back. Uh, so they're, they're the people who definitely uh, they, they would be interested in making a planned gift in their will. Um, but uh, it's all a matter of, for us, uh, our institution, finding strategies to reach them. And not only reach them and say, hey, do you want to give us money in your will? No, you have to craft a message for them specifically to make a case for why they should give to you, to, to why should they consider even making a, a, a major gift in their will. But definitely it's a... It's, uh, there are some uh, opportunities there, but also uh, coming back to uh, your earlier point um, as to public renewal, certainly it's a conversation that's ongoing. How do you renew the public? 
uh, how do you get younger people excited about the, the art form, about opera? Because what I see uh, is that when young people, when young people experience opera, when they get acquainted with it, they can become quite passionate about it. Um, I don't think opera has lost any of its relevance throughout the years. Yes, the, the work that we present can sometimes be very old, but the stories that we tell are timeless. And even in, uh, even in, in today's society, we, we, they're, they're being reactualized every time we present them on stage. Because if you think uh, opera like, uh, you know, like Carmen, uh, Verta and, and other uh, uh, Traviata and other blockbusters uh, like that, it's, uh, it's, it's opera that, uh, that speak to us today. So, um, so I think that's a, that's a very powerful way to reach a younger audience there uh, by just, you know, focusing on uh, the stories that opera tell. And I think this is really the backbone of the, of the art form. And it's what also had uh, endured throughout the time that, that, and, and will endure because those stories are timeless. They, they will never get old. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can present them in, in, in different ways, of course, with the staging and, and, and whatnot. But, and also what's interesting is that, uh, you know, when we're talking of reaching uh, young people i recently discovered uh the popularity of opera on tiktok now i don't know if a lot of your uh, listeners alexandra are on tiktok i wasn't until three weeks ago and i decided to join tiktok to see what the fuss was about you know and uh, there's a lot of young people uh using hashtag opera and it's even more popular than on uh, on instagram and 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 facebook so there's a uh, niche but then it seems to have gained a, a tremendous amount of popularity on the social media which you know reach people from maybe uh, 14 15 years old until they're they're 25 that's really the demographic of, of TikTok. TikTok yeah mm -hmm. yeah I, I mean of course older people are on TikTok as well but that's really the the niche audience so I was shocked and pleasantly surprised to to see opera not only being there but thriving and with artists it's mostly artists or or young singers you know with varying degree of skills but all with a passion with opera who propagate the the art form who incorporate what i call the cool factor in mm -hmm. in opera and uh you know for us Coming back to the Opéra de Québec, 55% of our audience is under 65 years old. Yay! Yay! So that means it's, you know, it's a lot of people who, uh, you know, who are not old. Yes, no. <laughs> because at 65, you're not old. And, and mm -hmm. even after 65, you're not old, in my opinion. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you, you, there's a potential there to, to reach a lot of people. And um, we've seen that also with our uh, digital events uh, at the Opéra de Québec. We had two galas and we had three uh, short video uh, opera capsules uh, on, uh, on YouTube. And uh, definitely we're reaching not only a newer public, but also uh, a younger public. So the, the challenge will be to, uh, to find ways to, to bring them in, in the hall, but um, we, can, we can do that because the Opéra de Montréal 
has spent some time and energy uh, reaching out to young people. And at some point, uh, young people under 40 made up for 30% of, of their audience, which is, which is significant. Uh tu, tu as très bien mentionné TikTok et les autres réseaux sociaux euh, qui, euh, en fait, euh, sont différents d'une génération à l'autre. Euh, maintenant, euh, Facebook n'est plus le choix des plus jeunes. Euh, oui. Mais tu, euh, et j'imagine que tu t'es rejoint à TikTok aussi euh, par souci professionnel, parce qu'à l'Opéra de Québec, tu es aussi responsable pour les relations avec les médias et pour des réseaux sociaux. Euh, les deux volets impliquent la communication avec le public, mais euh, évidemment, c'est une approche très différente entre l'un et l'autre. Euh, les stratégies semblent devoir être différentes afin d'assurer la maximisation des renseignements transmis. Alors, pour euh, les néophytes euh, en communication, pourrais-tu expliquer en quoi se manifestent les différences entre les deux volets des euh, médias traditionnels et des réseaux sociaux? Oui, ben en fait, c'est ces deux volets, mais qui font partie d'une stratégie de communication qui est en fait beaucoup plus grande. Donc, moi, mon rôle à l'Opéra Québec, oui, les, les, les relations avec les médias, ça fait partie de, de, de mon travail. Euh, gérer les réseaux sociaux, ça fait aussi partie de mon travail. Mais comme par exemple, euh, mes tâches à moi sont beaucoup plus, plus vastes. Ça incorpore les placements publicitaires, à la fois traditionnels et, et web. Euh, ça implique notre site web, euh, tout ce qui est marketing euh, numérique et autres. Alors, c'est vraiment, euh, en fait, une stratégie à, à 360 degrés. Et donc, euh, ces deux volets-là, euh, les relations avec les médias et la gestion des réseaux sociaux, sont, euh, sont vraiment différentes, mais aussi complémentaires dans le sens que les messages à diffuser ne sont pas les mêmes. On ne peut pas le faire de la même façon. Les, les destinataires ne sont pas les mêmes. Les informations à transmettre ne euh, sont pas les mêmes. Les besoins euh, non plus de chacun de, de ces groupes-là ne euh, sont, pas, sont pas les mêmes. Il faut adapter son message euh, selon l'auditoire qu'on a aussi, son âge, son intérêt envers nos activités, le, le degré de connaissance aussi de notre organisation, l'état d'esprit. Euh, Alexandra, tu disais tantôt que bon, euh, bon, le, 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 la démographie sur TikTok n'est pas la même que, que sur Facebook, euh, que les jeunes quittent euh, Facebook. Euh, et tu as tout à fait raison. Je te dirais qu'on ne parle pas de la même façon aux gens sur TikTok ou sur Facebook ou sur LinkedIn ou sur Instagram. Chaque réseau social a sa propre spécificité, sa propre énergie, euh, ça, ça, son, son propre, euh, son, le propre ton qu'on doit adopter sur les réseaux sociaux. La beauté de, de Facebook, c'est que euh, tout le monde y est. C'est sûr que les jeunes sont, sont davantage présents de d'autres façons sur différents réseaux sociaux où leurs parents euh, n'y sont pas, mm -hmm. mais euh, les jeunes se restent présents sur Facebook quand même, euh, qu'ils soient, euh, même, même s'ils sont sur, sur TikTok, euh, euh, je pense qu'un réseau social comme Facebook est devenu tellement euh, essentiel pour rester connecté, pour diffuser de l'information, pour participer à des événements, pour se tenir au courant de, de différentes choses. Et nous, euh, 
Bien, pour les organisations culturelles, c'est sûr que c'est un, un peu de l'or en barre parce que c'est des leviers extrêmement puissants pour nous de justement rejoindre, rejoindre ces, ces, ces gens-là. Mais bon, alors, qu'est-ce que je disais? Bon, c'est sûr que pour revenir un peu à ta question, là, on ne s'adresse pas au même public. Bon, les journalistes chargés de couvrir les arts et la culture pour un média donné, souvent, bon, ben eux, ils n'ont pas beaucoup de temps, ils reçoivent beaucoup de communications similaires parce que bon, moi, à l'Opéra de Québec, je renvoie mes communiqués, je renvoie des informations, mais il y a tous les autres organismes culturels aussi de la région qui, qui font la même chose. Alors, comment est-ce qu'on peut se démarquer dans tout ça? Tu sais, comment comment euh, avoir leur, leur, leur attention pour qu'ensuite ils décident que, ah oui, bon ben, ah, c'est vrai, l'Opéra de Québec, il y a une production qui s'en vient, je vais en parler, je vais aller faire une entrevue, je vais diffuser ça à la radio ou à la télé ou, ou, ou peu importe. Alors que pour, euh, disons, de, de, les réseaux sociaux, euh, le contenu présenté va être différent un peu. Euh, on peut mettre, par exemple, des vidéos euh, behind the scenes. Euh, des, des coulisses euh, ou avoir, par exemple, des, euh, des artistes là, qui, qui prennent le contrôle de, de nos réseaux sociaux euh, durant une journée euh, au cours de, de, de la production pour donner un peu un aperçu aux gens de « oui, mais bon, euh, pour un artiste concrètement, comment ça se passe durant les, 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 ouais. les répétitions? Euh, As-tu une routine quand tu te lèves? Avant un show, c'est quoi ton déjeuner? Tu » sais? <rire> Je veux dire, il y en a qui font ça, il y en a qui disent « ben moi, euh, le matin d'un show important, je prends un gros déjeuner, où je fais des push-ups, je me tiens en forme. Donc, tu sais, c'est pas du contenu qui va nécessairement intéresser les médias, par exemple. Mm. Euh, ou peut-être, ça reste des généralisations, mais donc, tu sais, je pense que tu comprends, il faut y aller euh, d'une façon un petit peu plus personnelle. Et euh, sur, le, sur le site web aussi de l'organisation, c'est encore autre chose. Je dirais que c'est peut-être euh, un peu euh, un mélange des deux euh, pour rester quand même euh, un peu plus formel sur le site web, mais en même temps, on peut se permettre une certaine créativité aussi dans, dans la façon qu'on qu qu présente les choses. Et c'est sûr que <coughs> je ne mettrai pas euh, la même chose sur euh, Facebook que sur LinkedIn, disons, les vidéos euh, de coulisses. Euh, je vais mettre ça sur Facebook. Peut-être que je ne les mettrai pas sur LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Bon. Il euh, y a des choix éditoriaux comme ça euh, que, que, que je vais faire. Donc, euh, ça revient à ce que je disais tantôt, là, de, de varier le ton euh, de, selon l'audience selon et selon le réseau social. Non, c'est en fait, oui. ça, mais en fait, les, les communications, ça s'est énormément euh, complexifié et diversifié dans les dernières années avec l'arrivée justement des, des communications numériques et, et des réseaux sociaux. Hein. Now you you are uh, extremely uh, uh, diverse in your activities, and uh, you experienced as a team leader of both uh, personnel and volunteers. Because obviously, though I don't doubt that you are perfectly capable, I know you do not do all this all on your own. Uh, so, uh, considering uh, your your vast. Uh, vast uh, bassin of colleagues and volunteers. Would you say there are universal leadership approaches that you have found effective for both uh, employees and volunteers? No, do you have to adjust based on the power balance uh, that's completely reversed from one group to the other? So how does the, you know, in a way, the, the machinery work behind the scenes of communication? Yeah, well, um, of course, you know, you can't, you can't um, 
you can act with people in, in quite the same way with people who are paid to do a job and the people who are volunteers. But this said, I don't think the differences are all that great. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll come back to why that is uh, later, you know, because yes, I'll, I'll just explain a bit later, but um, I do believe that the qualities of a good leader uh, remain more or less the same uh, regardless of the context. There, there, there's no different ways of being a good leader depending on the context. You know, either you believe you, you, you possess leadership skills or, or you don't, and then you can acquire them, you know, but um, I think whether regardless of it's, you know, paid workers or volunteers, I don't think it, it makes a difference. Uh, those qualities are respect. And again, respect, respect, respect. You have to respect the human being, whether that person is paid to do a job or just does the job because believes in the organization and wants to help out. The, uh, the ability to motivate and inspire. People uh, lead by example. And, uh, you know, if there's a job to do, you have to, you know, get down to it and, and help with the job and you have to inspire and motivate people to to follow you in your footsteps uh you have to you need the ability to see the bigger picture uh, uh to face the consequences of your decisions uh and so you you have to have a, a broad uh, just a broad vision of the context you you need to be able to explain things clearly so you have to possess pedagogical skills um, not everyone will understand things perfectly the first time, um, so you have to be very patient and, and possess skills to explain the same thing in different ways so that everyone will understand and, uh, and, and be able to do the job correctly. You need to set expectations, and that's very important. Because often, you know, you think, oh, well, this person is just a volunteer, you know, but no, I believe that even if a person is a volunteer, the person is, is there to help out. They, they want the organization to thrive. They want to do good. They want to succeed. So you, you have to set expectations. You have to say, okay, well, you are here. Thank you for being here. This is what we're expecting of you today. This is, you know, what will, you will be asked to do to that level of, of, of competence. And of course, you need to have a, a positive attitude. Uh, no one wants to work with someone who, who has a, a bad attitude. I would say this is, you know, kind of like the basic qualities of a good leader. Uh, other people might, might give others, but, um, and uh, so, uh, and, also, another thing is you have to find out what motivates uh, the people that you're dealing with, whether volunteers or workers. Why are they involved with your organization? Why do they want to help? Uh, why are they here? You know, why did they sign up to help out or to, to do this job? Uh, find out more about them on a personal level. You know, uh, so that they, they don't just become a, a number, but that there's a, a connection with them. That that's a value of a, of a, of a good leader, um, and uh, you also have to uh, to deal with your own emotions and frustrations. Uh, as I said, not everyone learns at the same pace, and and sometimes you know it 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 helps to. Um, to put back the focus on you in the sense that if someone doesn't understand something, uh, if something isn't clear, then I always say, no, okay, no, it's not because the person 
uh, cannot understand this, it's because I have explained this poorly. So now how can I, you know, stop, reflect and explain that thing again, maybe more clearly so that the person will understand. Uh, explaining things, the same thing in different ways sometimes help also. Um, and I, I talked about vision. Uh, where will we be in five years, 10 years? Where do you want your organization to be? Where are we going? You know, if you don't know where you're going, it's hard for people to follow you if they don't know the road, right? So it's a, so strategic planning is a, is a big part of leadership. Uh, you know, when Ella, this, this, um, the, the future is part of my, uh, last set of questions so that uh -huh. will conclude our meeting. Je me demande si l'art de l'opéra est devenu un art muséal. Je m'explique comme compositrice, je me trouve dans l'impossibilité de mettre la question de la place de l'opéra contemporain dans une institution dite traditionnelle. Dans nos jours, mes collègues et moi, nous inventons toutes sortes de modèles pour nos œuvres de scène. Étant donné que les maisons d'opéra ne commanditent plus de nouveaux opéras. Pourtant, dans le passé, l'opéra était le phare de la musique contemporaine. Et donc, voici euh, futur 5, 5 ans, 10 ans, mais euh, à quoi ça donne, je veux dire, est-ce que nous sommes dans l'ère du musée? Non, au contraire, euh, je ne crois pas pour la raison que, que j'ai expliqué un peu tantôt, euh, à cause des histoires que l'opéra raconte. Euh, les opéras euh, qui ont été écrits, euh, oui, euh, ils ont été écrits parfois il y a, il y a plusieurs années, euh, plusieurs centaines d'années euh, à l'occasion, mais les histoires restent les mêmes. Alors, euh, euh, je ne crois pas du tout que l'opéra va devenir une forme euh, muséale, euh, au contraire. Et euh, je crois, comme tu dis, que l'opéra comme forme d'art s'est éclaté. Euh, dans le sens que c'est devenu, euh, c'est pas devenu un opéra euh, nécessairement avec deux, trois heures. Il y a, il y a différentes façons de présenter l'opéra et l'art lyrique en général. Et je pense que ça, ça peut être très positif parce que peut-être que on, ça peut être une nouvelle façon de rejoindre un nouveau public, justement, à s'intéresser à l'art lyrique et à ces formes d'art-là, justement, parce que maintenant, on a une diversité de, 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 de modèles de ce qu'est l'opéra. Euh, donc, euh, c'est donc ça. Si je disais, là, je parlais tantôt les, les, des histoires comme Werther, Eugène Onegin, Carmen, La Traviata, Porgy and Bess, euh, c'est des histoires qui parlent de nous, de qui, euh, de qui nous sommes, de, mais aussi de la société dans laquelle euh, on vit. Euh, ça peut avoir des, des échos très importants euh, euh, aujourd'hui. Et, et aussi, je pense que c'est pour ça que, que le public les aime, ces, ces œuvres-là, parce qu'elles euh, continuent à nous parler aujourd'hui. Mais euh, ceci dit, je crois que les choses commencent à changer pour l'opéra euh, contemporain. Aux États-Unis, euh, mais aussi au Canada, il y a beaucoup de maisons d'opéra qui programment de plus en plus qui, non seulement qui programme, mais qui commande aussi des, des, des opéras euh, contemporains. Euh, ça peut être un excellent moyen, comme, bon, comme j'ai dit, de rejoindre un nouveau public. Mais euh, donc, je pense que depuis quelques années, on, on assiste vraiment à un renouvellement de l'opéra comme forme d'art euh, contemporain avec ces nouvelles productions-là. Et vraiment, c est, c est, là, je parle d'opéra, euh, d'opéra avec un, un orchestre, un chœur. Euh, 
de, de une heure et demie, deux heures quand même, donc des, des, des œuvres substantielles quand même. Et je dirais que c'est devenu quand même une préoccupation des maisons d'opéra de programmer de, de l'opéra contemporain. L'Opéra de Montréal a mis à l'affiche plusieurs opéras contemporains récemment. Donc, il y avait Les Feluettes, Dead Men Walking, Silent Night, JFK, Champion, Swabda, 27. Et, euh, et même, il y a certaines de ces œuvres-là qui sont devenues un peu des classiques. Si on regarde Dead Men Walking, Silent Night, c'est des œuvres qui sont, qui sont reprises aujourd'hui. Euh, ça n'a pas été juste des, des, des œuvres qui ont été présentées une fois et qu'on qu oublie aussi. Euh, il y a le Metropolitan Opera aussi qui, à chaque année, euh, euh, programme des œuvres contemporaines. Euh, L'Opéra de Montréal aura deux œuvres de création. Euh, au Festival d'Opéra de Québec, euh, nous, on a présenté Starmania, euh, The Tempest, L'Amour de loin, Powder Her Face aussi, qui était une, une plus petite production. Euh, c'était pas notre production, c'est pas la production principale cette année-là du festival, mais c'était quand même une, une magnifique euh, production, le Powder Her Face. Louis Riel aussi, euh, un opéra contemporain, enfin, qui, a, qui avait été euh, composé pour les, les 50 ans, les 100 ans, pardon, du, euh, de, de, de la Fondation du Canada, qui a été repris en 2017 euh, pour, euh, pour commémorer le 150e. Évidemment, il y a Chant libre aussi au Québec qui se spécialise. Évidemment, tu, tu, tu les connais dans l'opéra mmh. contemporain. Alors, je pense que ça change beaucoup. Et je sais, pour parler à certains de mes collègues et tout, qu'il y a des initiatives aussi qui sont en chantier, qui, qui s'en viennent. Alors, je crois que, que l'avenir est, 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 euh, est plutôt encourageant sur ce front-là. Je pense que les, les anciennes œuvres vont toujours avoir leur place. Mais parallèlement à ça aussi, on va assister à... Euh, tout un renouveau d'œuvres euh, contemporaines qui, qui ont des, des, des préoccupations tout à fait euh, contemporaines, euh, qui parlent de l'histoire aussi. Euh, bon, JFK, évidemment, c'est un moment très spécifique de, de l'histoire américaine. Silent Night aussi, qui parle d'un moment euh, décisif durant la, la Première Guerre mondiale. Donc, euh, je crois que ça, ça va vraiment être intéressant euh, à ce niveau-là. Je suis exceptionnellement heureuse qu'on peut finir cette entrevue sur une note positive. Parce que le cynisme est parfois très répandu, surtout en temps de COVID, surtout dans le milieu culturel. Alors, je te remercie, chère Claudine, d'avoir amené, d'avoir apporté une bonne lumière d'espoir pour l'avenir de l'opéra. Et euh, merci beaucoup d'avoir été présente aujourd'hui pour euh, le balado Topical Reflections on Music. Bien, merci à toi. Et euh, oui, je crois que l'opéra a encore euh, de très, très beaux moments devant lui, malgré, malgré les difficultés euh, dues à la COVID et certaines qui étaient là avant la COVID. Mais, mais je crois qu'il qu faut être positif là, pour l'avenir. Euh. Mais la COVID a appris les gens à quel point la culture est importante. Parce que dès que les gens étaient chez eux, c'est la culture qui est venue nous sauver de nous-mêmes, d'une certaine façon. Les concerts numériques, les productions numériques se sont multipliées. Et tout le monde a trouvé de nouvelles façons de réinventer la diffusion. Peut-être pas nécessairement l'art lui-même, mais la diffusion. 
Tu as, as tout à fait raison et je pense aussi que les, les organismes culturels ont beaucoup appris au point de vue technologique oui. euh, sur l'utilisation du numérique, euh, quel qu'il soit, là, que ce soit mm. la diffusion, captation, diffusion, mais aussi euh, bon, réseaux sociaux et, et tout ce qui entoure, euh, tout ce qui entoure le, la sphère numérique. Donc, au moins, euh, si la pandémie pourra avoir eu du bon à ce niveau-là, ben, ce sera déjà ça. On prend ce qu'on peut. <rire> oui, tout à fait. Alors, merci beaucoup, chère Claudine, et une magnifique journée. Et merci à vous, chers auditeurs et chères auditrices, d'avoir été avec nous aujourd'hui. Ce fut un grand plaisir et je vous dis à la prochaine.